Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories. This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. If you think learning how to walk again in your life would be hard, then imagine having to do it not once, not twice, but three times. My guest today, Kath Cashel, has faced serious personal, mental and physical setbacks. Her story is one of those stories that will last with you long after hearing it. It is both remarkable and down to earth, but it's her energy, her interest in humans and her, well, her kindness that will stay with you much longer. And it certainly has for me. There's a point in our conversation today that Kath shares a story about a time with her dad. And at the time when she told it, it absolutely gave me goosebumps because it epitomizes the power that kindness has to heal. And this power is available for all of us. It's this power that prompted Kath to set up the charity, The Kindness Factory, which has a goal to encourage and inspire 1 million acts of kindness. You can go to the website and we'll put the links in the show notes for you to log your own act of kindness and to see the remarkable acts that have already been logged there. This conversation will leave you searching for ways that you can spread more kindness in your life and you absolutely can. Someone who knows what a difference this can make is the amazing Kath Cashel. Kath, it's such a delight to be sitting down with you in the studio. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Now, you are Australian, obviously, but you are currently living in LA. We're sitting down here in Sydney. How is life across the Pacific Ocean where you're kind of in between two different worlds? Um, yeah, it's good. Uh, I made the move there about this time last year, so I've been there close to 12 months now. Um, I really can't complain with the location. I'm sort of stuck halfway between Santa Monica Pier and Muscle Beach. So views aren't terrible. Um, the, I guess, society, broader society in LA um, is quite good, um, very open to expressing all sorts of different things in life, which is fantastic. And it's culturally been a big shift for me. I mean, originally, um, I, I am Sydney-based when I'm in Australia, but I'm originally from a, a town of um, 800 in population called Finlay. So um, it's, it's... And where is Finlay, just to kind of <laughs> orientate people? It's uh, rural it's New South them. Wales in the Riverina. So... Um, Oh, very close to the, the Victorian border, but definitely still New South Wales. So about 15 minutes from Daniloquin, which is probably the nearest town that everyone else sort of recognises and call it, say, 90 minutes from, from Wagga Wagga Airport. So, And what was it like growing up in a town of 800 people where I imagine, and even at school, you know everyone, you know what's going on, <laughs> like you know everyone's stories. What was that? That, uh, that childhood life for you? Um, I wouldn't change it for the world. I love Finley. I love going back. I'm going back in a month's time to be a keynote for um, we made the grand final in, in football in AFL So with my old cricket coach, Kerry O'Keefe. So um, I, there's every, at every chance I can get there, I will. It's always a tough commute because it's like a, a flight into Wagga and then a, another commute in the car and it's always a hire car or an eight-hour drive from Sydney. So it's always tough that way. But I actually moved to Sydney when I was eight, so I didn't get to experience my whole or entire childhood 
childhood there, but um, very proud also to say that I am from Finlay. So um, wouldn't have changed it for the world. I think the the country values uh, and the sense of community that you get from your neighbours and everywhere you go in town, people know you by name and they call you by name and a helping hand's never too hard or far away. Um, I think that actually built a foundation for who I am today and I wouldn't change any of my upbringing for the world. So, yeah. And the move to Sydney, what was that like at the age of... Age of eight. It was good. My dad's um, a police officer, or he was a police officer for 40 years. So he got a post in uh, in King's Cross, of all places, so from Finlay to King's Cross, which was a big shock to him. Um, and it was fine. It just seemed, I mean, even now when you sort of look back on your life retrospectively, you get one, you see it through the lens that you see it through every day. Um, and it was just a normal thing. But um, I think I was still at a, a young enough age to be able to adapt to, you know, the bigger school environments and the broader city living. And um, I, mess, I, I lived in a, a suburb called Mortdale. Mum and dad still live there now. Um, so it was removed from the city hustle and bustle, but um, not too far away, like it's a 30 minute, 30 minute commute on the train. So I still got to be in awe of the Harbour Bridge and um, and the Opera House and everything else like that. But um, I, had a, I had a great childhood, I had a really privileged sort of life, not in terms of high wealth, but had a very loving family. Um, I was always, um, you know, had enough social networks and friends and everything else like that, but always had a real strong attachment to being active and, and healthy, um, but more so just love the competitive nature of sport. So uh, sport was the only thing or the, the first thing that I really fell in love with, I think, um, and that's all sports. So swimming, um, soccer, cricket, hockey, you name it, I did it. Uh, I think at the start it was to get out of class more, more so than anything. <laughs> I wasn't, um, wasn't a, um, a very... Uh, like academic sort of student. I didn't really apply myself, I guess, to to schooling in that way. It was more how do I um, make the most of the sporting opportunities in front of me and be as active as possible, be around the the boys and the girls who also love that sort of stuff. And that's really where I I found myself and felt the best about myself when I was on on a sporting field somewhere. So was that almost uh, like whatever sport was going on, you're putting hand putting yeah. your hand up and being a part of that? Yeah, um, I found my calling in, in two sports in particular. Um, I, yeah, put my hand up for everything. I mean, I was selected um, in the New South Wales soccer team and I'd played two games in my life um, throughout schooling. So I wasn't... That's a pretty impressive couple of games then. Yeah, yeah. Um, don't don't think so. I was the only one to put the goalie gloves on. So <laughs> I saved a few goals and, and there I was in that team. But um, no, cricket was my my thing. Um, I think there's something. So I got to ask the question, why cricket? You know, you're a girl and it wasn't really big back then. And it really wasn't. When I was a kid growing up, I idolised Ricky Ponning and uh, Adam Gilchrist and Ian Healy and those sorts of guys because you didn't see the girls on the TV back then. Um, but I've got three older brothers, so they love playing. Um, so I played against them, um, found my way in the boys' teams, um, really loved playing. I think there's something about cricket where it's obviously a team sport. You've got 11, uh, 11 other players around you at any given time, um, yet it can come down to the performance of one person um, to determine the result of that match or that tournament or whatever it is. Um, and I really love that because as all of the pressure can be on you at one minute, um, you, you celebrate the highs with people and you commiserate the lows with your teammates as well. And it creates a sense of family as well. So and I don't think there's any other sports out there like that where that single resting moment of the game can can lie completely on your shoulders, yet you've got the 11 other people just willing you on at any given time. So Totally makes sense, that sense of a team camaraderie, but you've got this individualistic kind of sport yeah. that you, you, you need to perform or it can come down to what you do in that moment. Yeah, 
but it's amazing. Still love cricket to this day. So, um, but really found myself in that game and um, lived, breathed, slept, ate, dreamed cricket at any time from about, I, was, I only started playing. So I played in the backyard and in Finley a little bit. And then when I got to Sydney, um, dad sort of found the local boys team and um, I was on my way really. I sort of played for a fair lo- fairly long time and sort of dabbled in swimming a little bit, still, still get in the pool to this day, which is good. Um, but yeah, just loved everything about it. Um, growing up as a kid, that was the, my fondest memories are um, either training or playing the game. Now you ended up going into cricket, at a, you know, at a professional and at uh, at the highest level here in here in Australia. Was there ever any a thought for something else? Like if it hadn't have been cricket, um, and not even another sport, was there was there another trajectory or another career that you considered? No, um, <laughs> and it's probably not a good thing to admit. I put all my eggs in the one basket, and I now teach resilience to athletes and tell them don't not do to that. Do that. <laughs> it's the worst thing that you could do because it's not good and it doesn't put you in a very good position in life. But I also wouldn't change any of, um, I guess, my experiences and. And what what I even did to become a cricketer as well. So um, I, don't, I was actually chatting to a friend very recently, and I, I don't, I've never been a really incredibly self confident person, or I've never had an inflated sense of ego. But I've always had a bit of a weird sense of belief in me. So, um, and I don't know where that comes from. And when she said that to me only a couple of weeks ago, I was like, I wonder where that has come from. Has it been taught to me, or have I learned along the way, or where's it come from? And I really want to try and figure it out. But um, I wasn't a naturally skilled cricketer. I loved it and everything in life revolved around cricket, but I wasn't naturally skilled. So Elise Perry, I was not. Um, and for everything that I guess I lacked in in skill and natural ability, I, I made up for in, in just grit and hard work and, and a strong sense of determination as well. So against all the advice of the coaches who basically said, mate, we, we rate you because you're just so gutsy um, and you're the type of player we want in our team, yet you're just not at that, that, that bar. I just didn't really want to believe what they were saying. So I just kept pushing and finding other ways, I guess. So Did that spur you on even more or was it more just yeah. a sense of... I'll just keep going and see. No, it really, uh, I don't know what it is, if internal drive or um, I guess when you're told you, you can't or you won't do something, you just want to do it even more. Um, and it wasn't to um, get back at them. There was no malice in it. It was just like I genuinely believe I've got this. So um, I just found other ways. So for every coach in Australia that told me I'd never make it, um, I got a contract in the UK at the age of 20. So um, I finished high school, did my HSC, um, Went on to university, got a degree, fast-tracked that in sport and exercise science, did my exams early and then got handed my first professional contract in the UK for, for Middlesex. Um, so I was the wicketkeeper batter there um, and it was great. I really found myself, I guess, living abroad um, in a really foreign country, still English-speaking, so not that daunting, um, but finding new teammates and a place to live at a, a fairly young age. Um, and families not around and that, those kind of networks that can jump back into occasionally once a month or whatever. They yeah. Get, they're not there. None of it. But I made friends quite quickly. So, um, and then just really committed myself to the process. So obviously conditions in the UK are a lot different to here in Australia. I developed a front foot drive, which is just a shot in cricket. Um, and then after that two year period, um, come back to Australia and, um, 
I just, I guess I presented a stronger case for selection. So just got caught the eye through performances in local grade competitions and premier cricket um, and then got my first contract for the Breakers, um, so the New South Wales team, which was incredible. Um, I guess they're the most um, successful domestic sporting team in the country uh, in the history of sport, I think. Um, they've won sort of 21 out of the last 23 titles. And wow. So, yeah, to have made it in my home state where a lot of people from New South Wales, if they're ever going to make it, they go to different states because it's too strong and too competitive. Um, for me, meant everything because I was able to do it on my own terms um, through my own ways of doing it in a very different way to most people. But um, it meant that I could be quite proud of myself when that that debut finally happened. And um, it was a dream come true to, to play for the Breakers. Um, I mean, ultimately, as an eight-year-old, when I loved cricket so much or the love of the game started, I had one dream and ambition, and that was to play for Australia. So um, for that to have started to come true um, was fantastic. And I held my spot for as long as um, I could until sort of injury struck, I guess. But um, <clears throat> to be playing with, I think, at the team at the time, the Breakers had seven Australian players, um, and I was able to hold my spot with them in it. And I learned so much just through the, the, the tiny career that I had at that level. Um, um, but it meant the world to me and I'm still in touch with them t- to this day and they're all still great friends of mine and um, I think they really respected the nature of where I come from as well. Um, so rather than having all the skills in my basket, it was more she's made it on merit um, through a lot of hard work and we have a lot of respect for that as well. Do you remember the moment when you did get to play for Australia, when you heard about that? Yeah, um, I'll never forget the phone call um, and a lot of athletes sort of say it, they're like, um, I thought it was a prank call. Um, because I hadn't had that, like this illustrious career um, of proving myself at domestic level, um, I didn't really expect the phone call to come. So, um, and I guess I'd spent my whole life grinding for the moment of playing domestic cricket. It had finally come and then almost immediately and instantly I was handed uh, an Australian contract as well. So, that's just huge, right? Like you're there going, I've just worked my... Do you my... remember what they even said? Like, no. Like that phone call? No. no so the, the selector was um, a woman called Kerry Marshall um, and um, I still sort of see her sporadically and she's like, I don't... And I remember at the time she's like, you're never going to remember this call. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, of course, of course, just need to tell this person or mum and dad or whatever. And I don't, I don't remember anything about <laughs> it. I remember hanging up going... Who am I calling? Um, and it was my just ne- my nearest and dearest. And I said, "You got to get there to the to the game." And um, yeah, and they did, and it was fantastic. And I got to wear the hat and the jersey. And um, what was that like walking out onto the ground? <clears throat> I, I played at the Adelaide Oval, um, so it'll always be my favourite ground for that reason. Um, and even just like you know, you see it on on the TV when they're sort of filming the players walk out the shoot and they get onto the grass and they touch the flag and. Uh, they run out with so much passion um, in their face and you can see the pride on their chest and everything else like that. So to, to do that f- through your own lenses um, without a camera um, on top of your head or whatever you're watching, to actually be, be the person running through that tunnel um, is phenomenal and it's an experience it's really hard to articulate. Um, for me, I got really emotional. I felt like I wanted to cry running out there and I'm like, I can't be crying right now. I'm, I've got to sort of show up and perform. So... Um, it was amazing and I'd, I just thought I'd, I'd made it in life. It was the thing I'd worked ha- so hard for, I guess, 16 years um, to finally have it come true and to see my family who were so incredibly proud and um, my, f- my friends who had always been there part of the journey. Like as, as a kid in school when all your other mates are off partying and doing all those sorts of things on a Friday and Saturday night and you can't because you're in training or you've got a game the next day, that sacrifice finally is, is worth it when you can actually say that you've achieved that. 
um, and even if you hadn't, right, the sacrifice is always going to be worth it. But for me, it just meant everything. Now, your career playing for Australia ended pretty with a pretty significant injury, and and that's massive given what you've just described in terms of the pride, the sense, the the ambition, the. Um, I didn't have a plan B, this is the only plan that I had uh, moment. Can you share with us uh, what what that experience was and what it meant for you at the time? Yeah, it was devastating. Um, so it was about four games into my career um, and I had a bit of a prolapsed uh, disc in my lower spine. So I knew there was an injury there. We'd scanned it up. I had a bit of a few symptoms in one of my legs. It was going a little bit numb in the toe and... We'd scanned up, we knew there was a, a bit of an issue, but it wasn't significant enough for me to be completely stopped of playing. So um, the, the doctor at the time basically said, Kath, um, this is a 50-50 call, um, you make it. So um, you, you, I'll, I'll agree with you if you don't want to play and you don't want to risk it, um, and I'll also let you on the park if you so choose. And I mean, I just made it, so there's no chance in hell that I was that I was going to stop uh, myself or anyone getting in my way, for that matter, of continuing to play. And the symptoms at that time were, were manageable. I was in pain in my back, but nothing unbearable, and I had some pain medication and everything else like that. So um, what happened next was just um, sudden, very dramatic um, and traumatic. Um, I, was, I was fielding in cover, um, which is the position between the, the, the batter and the, uh, and the bowler. And the batter hit it quite quite quickly past me. It raced off to the boundary for four. Um, and I thought, I'll conserve some energy. I'll turn around. I'll, I'll chase after it half-heartedly. I'll throw the ball back in and then we're on our way, um, which is just standard. Um, as I twisted to my left, um, the, the, the disc came out that quickly. It's really unheard of, but the disc came out that quickly that the two vertebrae in my lower spine, so at S1, sorry, L5, S1, um, cracked onto each other very suddenly um, and part of the, the lower vertebrae cracked off and embedded itself straight into my spinal cord. Um, so I was 23 at the time and uh, I remember sort of feeling a very sharp pain um, and then um, I guess the the panic of not being able to feel anything below my waist just set in. So I, I hit the deck quite, quite quickly in the amount of pain that I was. Um, and I don't remember a lot about that. It was a very traumatic moment, obviously, but I remember a lot of people running to me because it was really sudden what had happened and really... Um, I guess hard for them to see what had happened because it was very routine in the grand scheme of things um, and very shocking, I guess, for them to see. And then a lot of people sort of said, Would, you were just sort of screaming, uh, lying on your back, screaming uh, that you couldn't feel your legs. So hugely traumatic for them as well as a teammate that they valued and had seen grow up and love the game and uh, and so forth. So I was airlifted to the hospital. Um, I had the first of five unsuccessful surgeries. Um, they'd finally got the piece of vertebrae out of my spinal cord, but um, there was a fair bit of damage done. So um, a lot of the specialists sort of said, Kath, um, we're very sorry, mate. Um, not only is the dream of obviously playing cricket as a profession that you've worked so hard for, not only is that gone, um, wait, we don't think you'll ever walk again and I'm, I'm just so sorry. Um, so mum and dad and... In that moment, what went through your head? Um, I just like, it was just sort of like one of the most tragic, not the minor most tragic moments in my life. There's been a, a couple of other things that have trumped that, but it's my just whole not a world... Moment you can imagine. Yeah, like to, I mean, for me, like how do you put that into perspective, it's like not only have I just lost my dream, the whole thing, I've worked 16 years to get to this very moment and it's finally happened and it's completely gone now. Not only is that gone, but 
I'm facing Will or like I'm facing life life as I know it has just changed in a big way. I'm I'm now disabled. I cannot feel anything below my waist. I'm bound to a wheelchair for the rest of my life. I've never once had anything against people with disabilities, but that's a confronting thing to learn um, right then and there. Um, that not only is your dream gone, but your whole life has changed as well and you're probably going to struggle a lot for the rest of your life. So... Um, Huge. It was huge stuff. I was obviously morphined up to the eyeball throughout that period. So it's a, it's a bit of a daze as well. Um, do I you do have any concept or whether you've had a conversation around what that was, those moments like for your family? Yeah. Um, yeah. So mum and dad sort of rushed by my side, obviously. Um, family came. My brother Grant, who I'm incredibly close with, he's just a wonderful person. We're all around me at that moment. Um, Mum and dad are, are very humble Aussies, so I like to refer to my family as very Australian and very charismatic and there's not many things that really shake them. Um, dad and I have always been quite close. He's a, he's a legend and one of my backbones. Um, so I think for him it was like, oh, obviously the immense proud, the pride that they felt to see me represent my country um, playing cricket and then to see your daughter in traction in a hospital bed um, in a pretty bad way um, is a tough experience. So, um, but yeah, I think when you can, when you're in a position where you've overcome a lot of challenges in life and you can look back retrospectively, um, for me, there's always been this overwhelming sense of gratitude for people who have shown up in my life. And um, I actually think throughout all of the experiences in my life, and we'll progress the narrative later, but throughout all of those experiences, I've actually been the lucky one to have been in the position I am because it would absolutely kill me to see someone that I loved and cared about in the positions that I've been. So um, we don't talk so much about that anymore. I think life sort of continued and um, other things sort of um, come in and all of that. But um, just a, I'm not a mum, I'm an aunt, a very, very proud auntie. Um, I've got five nephews, one niece and if I saw them like that, it would it would hurt me beyond belief. Yeah, so. you're right. They're often not the stories that we, we kind of talk about along the way, but that can be yeah. as tough and, um, and as important, as you say, the support and the impact that has... Um, when you're when you're in that situation, so you've been told this message, and uh, it seems like that's that's what the future's going to look like. When did that change in terms of okay, maybe there might be another outcome here? So I had five surgeries, uh, all of them unsuccessful, um, losing a lot of hope quite quickly um, and getting a little bit lost within the process, I guess, um, and the policies of hospitals and the recommendations. And um, one doctor had a lot of belief in me. So he's now the Australian team physician uh, for cricket, in cricket, um, for the men's side. And he sort of come in one day and he said, look, Kath, um, I don't want to get your hopes up too high, but you're very young, you're very fit, you're very healthy. Uh, I think you qualify for a pretty new age technique surgery um, of spines. It's called a total disc replacement. So they're big in the US at the moment, not so big here. There's one surgeon that does it. He's in the Gold Coast in Narang Hospital. Um, but I think you qualify, mate, and I think it could give you the only chance that you've got at potentially walking again. Um, so again, a no-brainer. Um, you either do it or you don't and you know the outcome if you don't and you know what the outcome could be if you do. So for me, I was like, doc, let's do it, of course, straight away. So what it is is um, historically for spinal surgeries, um, certainly with disc issues, they do what's called a, a fusion. 
Um, and it's a really restrictive surgery, so it's almost like a cage surrounding the spinal, um, not the spinal cord, but the vertebrae that are affected or damaged. And it doesn't really allow much for mobility and a lot of pain and residual pain sort of creeps in and um, it's not actually great for the musculoskeletal system, but it's actually better than what it could be if you didn't have it because it keeps your spine in a stable enough position so your spinal cord's not affected. Um, this is called a total disc replacement. So what they do is they space the, the vertebrae apart um, to what they should be and then they line the vertebrae with titanium steel reinforcement to give it the strength that it needs so it doesn't crack. And then they put almost like if you were to get your hip or your shoulder down a ball and socket joint inside of that. So one of the vertebrae has a divot and the other one doesn't. It's just got the ball. And it just allows a lot of free range mobility, I guess, so that you can get like the twists and the turns in your spine that the, the fusion actually wouldn't give mm-hmm. you. Um, and he'd only really been doing necks on sort of rugby league players and all those sorts of things. But um, he all my scans were sort of sent up and he said, yeah, I think I can actually make a difference to this person. Send her up. So I said, okay, so off to the Gold Coast I was flown to. Um, Dad come with me as a support. I was still 23 at this point in time. Um, and it's a, it's a tough experience because it's a new surgery and there's not a lot known about it. Um, but for me, the only thing in my mind at that point was this is my only chance. So I've got to take it and I've got to do it. Um, so I did. Um, it's, a, again, a very different type of surgery. Normally with a spinal surgery, they cut through the back. It's obviously a lot of scar tissue and muscle, muscle to cut through. With this one, they cut through your stomach. Uh, so very different approach. The reason is there's less scar tissue, but can also bring about, I guess, a, a lot of complications. So they shift your vital organs aside and then they access the spine that way. Um, so had the surge- surgery um, and just sort of the, the recovery is pretty intense. You sort of lie there in traction for two weeks, uh, all sorts of head noise creeping in, in a lot of pain, uh, a lot of medication. Um, will this be worth it? Will I take those steps? Um has my life or has this been to no avail? Will, will this actually be effective? So um, that was a tough two weeks to, to get through that. But um, I guess the drugs and everything else that's through your system, you're pretty in and out of it and drowsy and all that kind of stuff. So so I got through that two weeks and um, and then I did. I took my first steps with my, the doctor and a couple of physios under each arm and I still couldn't feel much um, below the waist, but certainly with their help and their guidance of moving my legs and my feet, I was able to take those steps, which for me, just meant everything. I don't think, like, I probably were just entertaining me or trying to lift my spirits. So I'm not actually sure that I actually took them myself, but uh, that was certainly guided and I got went through the process of lifting my legs up to take that, I guess, range of steps. So I imagine um, the moment that was progress. That was hope. Relief. Yeah. L- lots of relief, but ag- uh, hope, right? So um, I think when in any situation in life, be it whatever we're facing, whatever challenge or adversity we have in front of us, um, sometimes all we need is hope or belief. Um, So that little bit of belief that you can have in yourself to know that if you can then be a little bit better the next day that you'll take a further step or another step. And if you can't find that in yourself, then find someone that can give it to you. And for me, I guess my my life story is all about that, is finding belief in myself, but also having a hell of a lot of people who've been on the journey with me that have believed in me, um, which has made all the difference to me. So yeah, a lot of hope though. And you you embarked then on some extensive rehab. So hope um, is the starting point, but hard friggin' work (laughs) is is probably the next piece of the puzzle. 
Yeah, lots, lots of it. So um, I spent six weeks uh, recovering in a rehab facility in Narang in the Gold Coast and then uh, the, the surgeon said, Kath, you're pretty good, like we think you're well enough and you're now safe. Um, your wounds have healed enough for you to fly back to Sydney, be around your support networks and your family and your friends. Um, you should do that. So so I did and, um, and things see, it seems to be going really, really well. I went to rehab three mornings a week before work or being back in that um, training environment with my teammates, obviously very prescriptive exercises in comparison to what they were getting up to, but still had a contract at that point to the breakers. Um, and I sort of continued the process three mornings a week at rehab and then did my own stuff in the gym. And it seemed like this really miraculous recovery at that point in time, um, which was tough to get to that point. And then it would have been about six months after the surgery um, and the only way I can describe it to anyone who's listening is if you're watching too much TV and you sort of sat on your arm funny and it's in that bent position, goes numb and you're like, oh, I better stretch my arm out, it gets the tingles back and all that kind of stuff and you're on your way. It was a bit like that. Um, I woke up one morning very early due to being at rehab um, and... I was like, my leg feels a lot like what your arm would if you sat on it funny. And it was my left leg, which had a few problems going on. And that's where all the problems had started. And I thought I must've slept on it funny or I'll try and shake it out. Couldn't. Um, it was completely heavy and felt really dead at that point in time. And I was like, okay, it'll come back if I just give it the chance. I'll try and lift it. Couldn't move it. Um, I put my bedside uh, table light on and I looked under the covers and it was just blue, like a bruisey sort of color. I thought, oh my God, that's scary. Um, so I thought, well, I'll try and get it moving in any way that I can. So I picked up my leg with my hands and I put it on the side of my bed. I went to take a step and just face planted. I was like, oh my God, this is just not coming back. So I crawled into the bathroom and realised I had no idea if I was using the bathroom. And I remember the surgeon saying to me, Kath, um, the spinal cord injury is severe and as bad as yours. If that ever happens, it's life-threatening. That needs to be one of your warning signs. You need to get straight to hospital. So I got off the bar, out of the bathroom and I um, stubbornly crawled myself out to the front of my house. I got into my car because I had a healthy right leg and I could use that and I drove myself to hospital. I got out the front into the emergency bay, left my car there, crawled into the emergency ward to a lot of looks and stares and, ma'am, what are you doing? And I said, look, here's what I've experienced this morning. This is what I've had for the past six months. Uh, they put me into a wheelchair, took me straight into the first consult room and they just started pinning and measuring up my leg and doing all these sorts of tests. And um, I just sort of sat there for about half a day um, full of tests and everything else like that and just saw all these doctors sort of gathering outside my room. Um, and every time I'd look up to see try and read what was going on or see the frown or the expression on their face, um, they'd be looking in and they'd look straight away. They couldn't really maintain eye contact with me. And I thought, I'm, I'm in strife here. I don't think they're going to deliver many good things or much good news to me. Uh, and they didn't. So one doctor come in, it was it was my doctor. I'll never, ever forget what he said. It was simply, Kath, um, the news is not great. We're going to amputate your leg. And I just sat there stunned going, what on earth? How has this happened? what do you mean? Um, there's got to be something that we can do. Just just give me anything. I was just pleading with them at that point in time. Like I, I get that I'd broken my back and um, had some pretty severe life-changing injuries, but no one had ever told me that I was at risk of having my leg, leg amputated. So 
Um, I just sort of sat there again, stunned, and I just said, I need to call someone. Is that okay? They said, of course. Like, you should have had people here before this. I just hadn't thought at that point. So I called my brother. He's my best mate and just a legend of a, of a guy. And I said, can you come in? And he said, of course. Uh, really funny. He's actually a butcher, um, which oh. is not funny, but is. <laughs> I'll give it a crack. <laughs> so he come in and he just sort of joined with me in bargaining with them. Guys, you know how stubborn she is. Uh, you know that she just needs a crack at this. Can you give us a chance? And I guess to paint a picture for anyone, it's, I just sort of said, can you tell me, can you explain this to me? Cause I'm not really understanding. And they said, okay, Kath, anyone with normal, healthy legs, give them a sitting, standing, walking, crawling, running, whatever is they're doing at any given time. They've got a, a blood pressure reading of anywhere between 90 and 100% with a healthy leg. And I said, okay. And they said, anything below 20% is dire, anything below 10% is dead. And I said, well, where am I? You're at seven. And I went, whoa, so it's dead. Yep, that's why it's turned blue. Mm. Okay. Um, I said, it is fluctuating though. Sometimes it's going between seven and 14%. I said, okay, can you give me that? Can I have some hope? Again, hope, right? Belief. Can we hang on to that hope that it's going above 10 at some times? And they said, yep. And they said, look, it's still life-threatening. I need you to take this very serious. Um, We'll give you two weeks, basically. You've got a two-week deadline. Um, if it drops below 10 again, you're gone. It's going to get amputated on the spot. That's just to save your life. Um, uh, but we think exercise could help. Uh, it's a blood flow issue, the reason it turned blue. Um, and I said, well, fantastic. I know Guess how to do I that. Know how to do. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the only thing I do know how to do. Um, so um, they said, you have to go to hospital every morning, have it read and tested. Um, but on your way, go for your life, give it a crack. And I honestly think that half of that was just entertaining me. So my two weeks just sort of looked like I'd, I'd get up at five, go to rehab, use the help of the people there, get it moving in any way I could, go back home, have brekkie again, uh, go to the local gym. I'd enlisted the help of a PT. Um, so get them to help me. Then I'd go back to the gym um, after lunch, get anyone that would help me strap it in. And I really couldn't sleep, I guess, because of the confronting reality of having my leg cut off. So I... Um, I'd go to the gym at the SCG. I had a 24-hour access pass to the Sydney Cricket Ground because I was a contracted player there. And I'd go there at 2, 3, 4 a.m. Uh, to do anything that I could. Um, my le leg would literally drag behind me. So I had the Canadian crutches. I'd hop on my good leg, my right one, and the left one would drag. So my shoes were all worn down and it was really confronting. And the security guards would notice the lights on in the gym and they'd come in and go, Kath, what are you doing here? It's 2 o'clock in the morning. And I'd go, look, here's my challenge. This is what I'm facing. How do I help is all they would say. Um... So, mate, you just got to get me help. Help me get this leg moving. So I'd get electrical tape, and they'd strap my leg into a cross trainer or a spin bike, and they'd leave me uh, there, go back to their post, come back, unstrap me, and put me into the new machine. Um, and that was, I guess, the first instance of kindness that I ever really noticed in my life that people could make a difference to someone else's um, without much effort at all. Um, yet it could mean everything to a person, um, which meant the world to me. So, I guess to cut a, a really long story short, with my leg, I um, I got to the night, so very close before for having it amputated. Um, I stayed at mum and dad's that night because of everything I was facing and needing a bit of support. They were going to take me in for a 10 o'clock surgery the next day. I had to be there at seven, about three o'clock in the morning, staying at theirs in my old bedroom. I woke up feeling really unwell, crook. Um, I got up to use the bathroom and I don't really remember much about it, so I'm really relying on my, my dad, my old man, telling me the rest. I collapsed unconsciously onto the floor. He heard the thud, um, which woke him up picked me up, put me into the car, took me to St George Hospital, so nearest to their home, and um, they scanned me very thoroughly, whole body, um, and found that I'd been bleeding internally from the stomach wound, so the surgery I spoke of mm -hmm. before. Um, the surgeon had very accidentally um, 
and very, very unintentionally um, nicked the femoral artery in closing my stomach because um, I had nerve damage from the spinal cord and my leg had been quite bad. Um, it simply meant that the blood wouldn't carry into my leg, which is the reason it turned blue and uh, no blood would sort of pump into there. So um, I was rushed off that hour to more surgery. They fixed the bleed and then woke up to the news that Kath had saved, but for this hour only, like we can't guarantee this leg still, there's a lot of damage done um, and, you know, it could go in a week, a month, maybe a year, but we're not sure what could happen here, mate. However, if you ever want the chance at walking, pack up your life, quit your job, let go of your contract, off to rehab you go, so six to 12 months. So uh, that's what I did. I, I quit my job. I was working part-time while being an athlete, um, but I was working in operations at Cricket New South Wales, so quit all that. And I went to, to rehab and the prescription was a solid six to 12 months of in-house rehab. So um, as you said, tough just really tough. Um, something I'm right, like, really passionate about now is trying to improve those systems. Um, it just seems to get, you get second best of everything in rehab. Um, first week I was there, I was in the geriatric ward because I had no beds in the ward I was supposed to be in. Uh, so I just men, ended up making mates um, with the with the older guys. They had sort of three categories, the 65, 75s and over 85s. So how, to, how it happened, I don't know, but I was put in the 85s category and, and my best friend became a, an 85-year-old war veteran um, and, a, and another dementia patient called Daisy who we just grew to love each other. And um, for me, it took away um, visiting them every day. I've had the most amazing stories, um, which I still love to sort of talk about still to this day, which meant everything for me to hear because I was sort of stuck in the grind by day and then got to chat to them overnight. So... Um, but just confronting, I was fit, I was young, I was still healthy. And to be in those confined four white walls every day is just a shocking experience. Um, and something I'll never forget, not for, for good reasons, but um, for I've just got a passion now to try and improve that. But um, but learn a lot um, throughout that journey in the process. And um, as fate would have it, I sort of refer to my life as one big good and bad accident, um, but that one that I'd, I'm very grateful for and, and don't take for granted. Um, I ended up meeting a fellow patient um, about three weeks into my stay. So um, finally, someone of similar age to me, he was 25. I was 24 at that point in time. 60-year um, age gap between your other best friend. <laughs> exactly. So um, I think I was probably going a little insane but <clears throat> hadn't really realised it until he sort of come in. So he was a semi-professional rugby league player, so also had that athlete sort of mentality and um, we bonded over that at, at the start and started off as friends and... I guess I considered um, what was it like when I first got here and what were the things that really confronted me and how can I help him not have that experience? So, you know, she gave him a tour and um, which doctor to go see, which, how to go to hydro, all that kind of stuff. And very, very much um, to my surprise, we ended up falling in love. So my first real boyfriend, I'd had a couple in high school, but nothing serious. Cricket sort of took over and I was just too focused and to, to I guess, find love and all those sorts of things. So um, Jim, for me, was just the perfect match. He... Um, he was the sort of guy who treats the CEO the same way he does the cleaner. So just had this real sense of community about him and equality and, you know, high fives for everyone, cuddles in the corridor, all that kind of stuff. And um, and we just fell in love, which was amazing. And, um, I mean, who finds love in a rehab centre? Um, who's, who's lucky enough to say that? I am. It was amazing. We're young, like, like young sort of normal kids in, in love, I guess, instead of like long walks on the beach, wheelchair races in the corridor. <laughs> um, as the sun was setting. Yeah, as the sun <laughs> Was setting that we didn't even see because we were stuck in those <laughs> in walls. <the> fluoro lights. <laughs> um, but I just look back, like, I mean, even now, just sort of smiling because it was just such a special time. Um, uh, to, I guess, 
to have lost your dream, the one that I'd always had as playing cricket, to have lost that and then found something much bigger and more powerful and more special than that um, was a dream come true for me. And I felt quite lucky in rehab at that moment, at those moments in time. So um, I think the thing that spurred both of us on in recovery um, so he sort of injured his spine in a tough mudder obstacle race, not playing rugby of all things. But um, the thing that spurred us both on against a diagnosis of paralysis and not being able to walk and all those sorts of things um, was that we were able to dream this life outside of rehab. So as tough as that was every single day, um, and I still, to this hand on my heart, I would not be walking had it not been for his influence. But um, when you can dream about this life and conspire a life that's going to be um, beyond those walls that are really tough at those moments in time, it means everything. So that's what we did. It would be sort of four kids, three boys and a girl, just like my family. Uh, not that we'd ever have any control over that. Um, house in Broadwater in the Gold Coast, that's where he was originally from. We're going to have pet turtles, a dog named Saf, and um, this life that we'd just created in our heads, really, um, a creative dream, um, had started to sort of come to reality. So We'd been on out for 12 months, almost on the nose. Um, I'd been sort of discharged as a full-time patient, so an inpatient, and was considered what's called an outpatient. So you go to rehab three mornings a week um, and you have everything sort of looked at and all that kind of stuff just to make sure that progress is still on track and that you don't fall behind given that you're not in that environment anymore. So I was living at home. I'd started back at work, which was great. And then um, Jim had a day to go until, so he's a little bit behind me um, in the recovery process just because his injuries were a bit after mine as well. Um, he had a day to go. We put the, the lease on a house and all that kind of stuff for, for our whole dream and the rest of our life to start. And um, very suddenly and, and tragically, uh, he passed away that night. So uh, suicide and um, it just crushed me. Uh, I bet in that moment, as you say, to pick up a... The dream that had been created, the one that you're working towards collectively. Yeah. Would have felt that's gone. Yeah, and I, I, very, not, not proud of how I, I, well, I am proud of how I handled it because it's the only thing I knew how to do at that moment in time or what to do at that moment in time, um, but didn't deal with it in the most clinical or best way that maybe I could have. Um, and how do, you, how do you navigate through those experiences in life? I don't think anyone could or um, would know how to, especially when you're in the moment as well. So um, in that moment of, and I imagine you, that, like nothing can prepare you for that. Nothing can, there's no script or experience or, I mean, you describe um, the thread that you have of, of grit, even there's no amount of grit that can, <laughs> can help you in those moments where there. Were there people or conversations um, in amongst that that kind of bubbles a little bit to the surface in what would have been a pretty, you know, confronting and dark time? Yeah, I don't, no amount of grit can, nothing can prepare you for grief or loss, I don't think. Um, and if we were to talk about suicide for a minute, it's, to lose anyone in any way is horrific um, and let's not take that away from anyone. Um, I guess to lose someone to suicide when there's so many unanswered questions and so many things that you'd planned for and all that, it's a different type of grief I've, I've, I've found, I guess. I've lost a few close people to me now. Um, and it was just so tough because there was, and for me, the biggest thing, it wasn't um, a lot of, I guess we're called suicide survivors when you lose someone very close to you to suicide. And um, a lot of people sort of say, I look back on that memory or that photo where he's smiling or they're smiling and I wonder if they were actually happy. And I don't think 
that you can look at it like that. Um, there was never once a, a piece of, or never at any moment was there a piece of anger or resentment towards him either. Um, and I really need that to be clear with everyone. I, I felt anger, but it was never towards him and what he'd done or perceived to have done. Um, I felt a deep sadness for him um, because he'd given me so much in terms of love and to have loved him and to have been loved by him was the greatest honour and privilege of my life. It always will be because it was just that incredible person that he was. Um, I felt anger, but only towards myself that I couldn't have been there for him like he was for me and that I didn't see the signs, not that there were many. Um, the more people that I spoke to after it, not one of us saw it coming, a community of people, his mum, his family, his friends, myself. Um, and it was just really inexplicable. We just, none of us saw it coming. It hit us like a ton of bricks. And um, back to the question, did I... Um, I, I don't remember much about the 10-month period, right, after he passed. So I don't remember many of the conversations. I knew that I wasn't well. And there was no denying it. I knew I had a big problem and a lot of, I guess, psychological symptoms that I needed to overcome. I wasn't ready to yet with a psychologist or anything else like that. Um, and everyone in my life that knew anything about me could take one look at me and go, she's not okay. Um, and none of us were denying that, but I think in order for us to get help and to actually listen to what people are saying, you need to be in the right spot and you need to be ready for it. So I lasted 10 months um, and then the enormity of everything just hit me like a ton of bricks. So I went back to rehab one day, routine checkup with my leg. I walked past his room or his old room and I just lost it. So sort of threw myself up against the wall and uh, complete out-of-body experience, like mentally just broke. Um, I was pinned down by four male nurses. It was really ugly, um, sedated. And I remember waking up um, and I hate to sort of describe it this way, but it's the only way I know how when you're sort of hungover and you've made a bit of a fool of yourself the night before and you wake up with that doom of, oh my God, I'm an idiot or whatever it is. It was like that, but with a lot of shame and um, sadness attached to it. I woke up not really knowing what had happened, but knowing that something really bad had happened. And all the doctors started surrounding me going, Kath, you're incredible. Um, what you're going through right now is really normal. Um, uh, what you've been through is really abnormal. You're responding to it in a normal way. You're very human. It's okay. It's going to be okay. And all I remember thinking at that point in time was, you know what, if this is normal, it's not a life for me. I can't feel like this. I just feel horrible. I feel so much sadness. I don't even, I can't even articulate. I have no narrative for how I feel. I don't even know how to articulate what I've just been through. If you asked me to take you from scratch, from when I broke my back the first, when I broke my back to losing gym, I couldn't even start to do that. And I thought, I just sort of panicked, I guess. I sort of, and when I was well enough to be able to to be discharged from, from rehab, I ended up flying to the Gold Coast. So where Jim was from, his mum was from, she's still was there. And I just felt I needed to be close to him again. And I'd neglected my own, I guess, my, my own struggle and mental health, but I neglected the people that I'd met along the journey of us meeting. And it was really important for me to reconnect with those people. So I reached out to Wendy, um, Jim's mum, and I spent three weeks with her in the Gold Coast and we reconnected and it was absolutely beautiful. Um, and the thing I sort of chat about now is one of the turning points, um, I guess, um, was this really beautiful moment in the Gold Coast with her. So I was sat at her coffee table in the lounge room and I don't know why it happened, what compelled me to do it or why it was there, but there was a piece of paper that was empty and a pen. Maybe it was for a shopping list that she had not written yet or something. Um, still to this day, I have no idea what happened. I picked up the pen and I started writing a list of names and there are people who had ever helped me. Um, and I guess true to the 
previous two years. A lot of them involved the people who'd been on the journey and supported me throughout that. But even from a young age in childhood, people who had always sort of stood out to me as, as kind and people who had always done something for me and stood out, uh, not not that I needed things doing for, but people who had always been great to me and supported me regardless of what I was doing. And um, it was this incredible list. It was like one person turned to 10 to 30 on a list. And I picked up my phone and for the next three hours, I called every single one of those people. The first was like my doctor and he picked up things thinking maybe that I'd broken something again. He's like, oh my God, in a panic. Kath, what have you done? What have, what have you broken? How do I help? I said, no, doc, I'm just simply calling. I just wanted to reconnect and I really just need to say thank you. He's like, what do you mean? Thank you. And I said, well, you obviously saved my life and uh, I think I'm going to be okay, doc. Like I'm going to be all right and I feel okay at the moment. He said, Kath, before you go, before you hang up the phone, I need you to hear something. And I said, what is it? And he said, it is so good to hear from you. To know that you're okay means everything to me um, and I'm just so proud of you, mate. And I said, thanks, doc. Um, and then I just went through this list. Every single person I called him. Simple notion of gratitude, right? Mm. Like we preach it and we hear about it everywhere we go. Professionals, experts, psychologists, you name it. They're all telling us to do it yet. Yeah. We don't sometimes do it until we're pushed in cor into corners of ourselves that we have no other option than to embrace something and to really find something at rock bottom. Um, and I don't think that should be the case. I think we should all do it at any given moment in life. Still to this day, I write down three things that I'm grateful for every single day. Um, and, um, well, you'd know this, given your background, like rewires your brain and puts you in that positive frame. So... Um, Powerful to have that experience, though, in that moment, in that moment. It, it was a, there's just been some really pivotal moments in my life, but I look back on that one going, no one, it wasn't big back then, gratitude and embracing it, and no one told me to do it, and I don't know why I chose to do it, I still, but I'm so glad that it happened, because it, um, it was a really big turning point in my life. It was the first time, I guess, after hitting rock bottom, um, you realise there's one way to go, it's up. Um, I think it's JK Rowling that says that. I fully agree with it. Um, and it's actually a liberating thing going, um, I've got no boundaries around me anymore, I just need to go up and that's the only direction I can move forward in. Um, and with that done, with the, the simple notion of expressing gratitude to people who had helped me, I, it was the first time throughout that two-year period where I was like, everything's going to be okay. I'm going to get through this so long as I surround myself with the right people and I let myself just be me. And I didn't know what that could look like or what, it, what my future would hold. I'd lost my job, obviously. Um, I handed in my resignation throughout that rehab experience and then lost gym. And I didn't know what a career could look like. I was 25 at this point in time. I couldn't play cricket anymore. What will my life be? But I wasn't panicked about it. I was like, I'm going to figure it out along the way. Um, and whatever it is, I'll, I'll be okay, I think. So um, after that three weeks, I sort of come back home. I was ready to come back to Sydney and be around my, my family and friends and come back to absolutely zero judgment from any of them. I worried the hell out of them. Like they knew where I was, but, um, but they were still very worried that I wasn't around them and they couldn't keep an eye on me, I think. But um, just back into the loving arms of them and um, back to Sydney and um, I guess then sort of got a job back Cricket New South Wales through me, a, a lifeline at Cricket New South Wales as the operations manager again, which was great. But I guess just felt a little bit lost um, in life. So maybe, maybe it is adversity, maybe it's, I don't know. Um, but I guess, as I said, it pushes you to corners of yourself that you never knew you'd go to if it hadn't happened. And for me, I just wanted to find some sort of purpose again, I think, beyond cricket and um, understanding, I guess, that my life had been saved by other people's goodwill and their nature and, and their kindness. Um, maybe I was just feeling a little bit lost at that point in time, but, um, but knew that everything would be okay when I returned as well. Powerful, powerful moment to kind of, you know, step into what is that sense of gratitude and, and, and 
now to almost go, yeah, where where do I go from here? Um, but with a sense of, yeah, gratitude is important yeah. in that space. Remarkable journey, but that wasn't the end of some of the um, trauma that you experienced. I understand you broke your back for a second time. I did, yeah. Um, I'll quickly sort of fill in a gap before that. So come home, got the job, did all that, feeling a bit lost. I started doing little things for other people. So um, it's the only thing that made me feel alive again. Some people go to drugs, some people do all sorts of great and sometimes bad things when they're faced with those challenges and they're finding purpose and all that kind of stuff. So for me, it just the service of, of others, I guess the way I saw it at that point in time is the kindness of people, I guess even on that list that I sort of spoke to, I felt had saved my life, um, be it mentally, emotionally, but even physically when people had shown up in moments that I really needed them to, kindness had saved my life. So I just started doing little things for other people um, and I accidentally raised a lot of money for a charity organisation. Um, it's now close to half a million dollars and all of it was a big accident um, and a community of people had always rallied. It's never been just me, but um, it's the only thing that really put me on track. So I sort of pushed it all together. And I, I don't know even how I came up with the name, but it was Kindness Factory, right? Um, it was kindnessfactory.com. It was an online blog of me just sharing my experiences of paying it forward. Um, I, I guess paying forward the kindness that had been given to me and paying it forward to other people who I felt needed it, or even if they didn't, just to cheer them up. You know, it was raise money for wheelchairs in kid, for kids in need. Um, I bought the homeless some dinner. I once bought a random stranger dinner. He now pays it forward with haircuts for people and everyone loved it. It was like, um, why are you doing this, Kath? And I was like, it's the only thing that makes me feel alive again. Um, and everyone started to follow it online, which was great, but really never intended it for to be anything much bigger than me paying forward the kindness that had been given me. Um, I went to, to rehab for a, a routine checkup um, about... Um, Oh, I was about six months later um, and physically I was going really, really well. My back was great. My leg was great. Had a, a round the table discussion with the doctors saying, look, I think I'm ready for discharge. Would you agree? Yeah, we do agree. You're going so well. We're really proud of you. Um, do you have any questions? And I said, yeah, yeah, I've got one. Or maybe it's a statement. I miss the competitive nature of sports. I really miss cricket. It's the only thing I ever felt like I was good at. Um, but I love the, the camaraderie of sport and teammates and just the competitive drive in me needs to do something. And I still can't feel my left leg, so anything below the knee. And um, that rules out cricket because I couldn't play the shot that I was good at as a batter. So I said, is there anything else I could do, notwithstanding cricket? So they said, well, let's have a think. Um, consider this. Um, you'll your recovery was based in a pool. You're a very strong swimmer. Um, it was also on a bike. You're a good bike rider. Add in a run, you could be a paratriathlete. Is that something you consider because you don't like doing things in halves? I said, yeah, okay. Uh, so I signed up for a tester. I loved it. It was amazing. Um, and then I went on to do the Half Ironman in Sunshine Coast, Malulabar, September 2015. I was the first person with my disability to do it. I did it with my brother who I spoke about earlier. Um, it was amazing. We trained together. It was a really like lovely finish line sort of moment where you got to hug and be proud and all that kind of stuff. And bucket list sort of stuff, I thought, okay, uh, I really want to do an Ironman. Uh, never wanted to do any more than one because the training's just horrific for it and it takes up your life. And um, I signed up for the 2016 Port Macquarie Ironman uh, due to be completed in May. And um, my training was on track. I've been training for close to six months on it. It got to the 10th of January, so four months from the event. Routinely, um, with my two best mates on a Sunday, the 10th of, of Jan, I took off from Cronulla in south of Sydney 
I was going to ride my bike to Manly, have breakfast, come back. Um, it would have been a 90-kilometre round trip, nothing in the grand scheme of things. I got to the north side of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, really nice day. Um, started turning right to head into Manly, so nearly at the halfway point. And I just felt this thud on my body uh, and then the lights went out and um, I woke up two weeks later from a coma to the news that I was paralysed and told that I'd never walk again for the second time in my life. I um, I broke my back in four places this time, so at every level as well as a fracture in my C-spine, my T-spine, my L-spine and my S-spine, so at multiple levels. I've uh, shattered like my left hip, that took a while to get back. Um, my right wrist broke and my neck dislocated very quickly as well. So I was not in a very good spot. Um, physically, I, I learnt upon waking several days after waking that mum and dad had to make some pretty tough decisions about life support at certain points and I'm really glad that they made the decisions that they did because I'm still here to this day. And um, it was really tough. I woke up from in ICU um, not really remember mu remembering much about the the event, but obviously very shocked um, at the state of my body and in a lot of pain and unable to move and quite pinned down to the bed and in a lot of traction and all those sorts of things. And um, what did you find out about what had happened? Um, so immediately upon waking, it's almost like a you're in a shocked state, and so you're not really worried about what happened. You're more like, am I okay? And then when they tell you what what that means is how your body is and what you're going to, what's going to be required to keep you alive and then to recover. It's almost like, how did this happen? Um, what do you remember, Kaskas? And it's like the, the brain scans and they're doing a lot of cognitive testing at that point in time. And then I was like, what do I remember? Wow, it's like a, a coma is a weird experience. It takes a lot away from you. So I was like, I remember going for a bike ride um, and they were like, is there anything else? And it's come back to me since. So um, a lot of those cognitive testings that are going on are obviously very specific, um, but they're also sort of testing yourself as well. He's like, well, what do I remember? Do I remember being hit? No, not at this moment. But what happened was he, he sort of crashed into the, um, to the left side of my body with the right side of his car. Um, it unbuckled me, the impact of that unbuckled me from the bike. I landed on his bonnet. He saw me when I was on the bonnet. He braked only then. Um, so I sort of shattered the windscreen. And then as the braking, the impact of the braking sort of happened, I launched off the car um, and bounced on the road, my two best friends said. So they were with me uh, on that as well. Um, and then just sort of, uh, it was, I don't remember much about that afterwards. So it was obviously ambulances and uh, and the work. So I had a, still got a lot of, had, had to have a lot of skin grafts all over my arms and there was a lot of superficial sort of scarring up top and um, then the, the breaks in the bones and all of that. So I, I ended up spending six weeks um, in ICU in Royal North Shore Hospital, so North Sydney. And then I... Um, I had six months of recovery in rehab again. So I had to go back to rehab, um, which was tremendously tough because of what happened there the first time um, and taught myself how to walk again, I guess, if you count infancy uh, the third time in my life. And it was tough because it was in the media a lot um, and obviously a lot of people understood where my life had been prior to that point and that's a, a lot to hear um, for one person to have gone through. Um, so I had this outpouring of support, which was good and bad. Um, good in the fact that I never felt unsupported. Um, bad in the fact that I needed some space to really um, consider what, what my life was about to be again um, and where I'd come from and some privacy to be around my loved ones and all of that. But um, I guess one of the most amazing parts about that outpouring of support was that 
um, everyone knew that I was into this kindness thing and I'd created kindness factories, me paying it forward. And they saw me there in a hospital bed pinned to it, unable to move. And I thought, if she can't, I will. Um, and they were really inspired by that, which meant everything to me. So this outpouring of people saying, Kath, I hope you're okay. I'm really, like, I'm really sorry to hear. I wanted to let you know that today I mowed my neighbour's lawn or I donated blood because of you or I little kids, I tied my sister's shoelace or whatever it was. Um, and those moments spurred me on. So uh, as tough as that experience was, and for every part of me that said I couldn't do it, that they were the people telling me that I could not directly, but through the kindness that they were giving others, it really meant something to me. So I felt like I owed it then to, to them to really get myself back on track and to lead this charge of, or this small movement of kindness that we'd created inadvertently, uh, and again, by accident. So um, I just, I just, spurred myself on every day in rehab, if not for myself, then for the other people that believed in me. Uh, I guess I'm intrinsically motivated by people who care about me um, and there's nothing I wouldn't do for them. So if they're telling me I can do something, then I, I know that I can. So um, that meant the world to me to have their support. Um, the toughest part about teaching yourself to walk um, twice when you're told that you're never going to um, is that everyone keeps saying, mate, you've got this, you've done it once before, you know the process. And yes, that's true. Um, however, uh, you also know how hard it is. The first time you're doing it, uh, every day is this unknown fight where you're like, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it. The second time you go, I remember this part of recovery. It is really tough. It is really painful and I'm really bloody tired. Um, so that was a really strong or tough battle for me. Experience and information may not serve. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. It was helpful, but it wasn't helpful. So, um, but we all have moments, right, in whatever we're facing in life. I, I think my life's considered to be this big challenge and adversity. I wouldn't change my life for anything. It's been absolutely amazing and I'm really proud to, to do what I do every single day. Um, but I don't think that you can dismiss people who haven't had these perceived big challenges like I have and say that their life is any less important or that their adversities don't count for as much as what mine do. I think adversity is such a relative experience. So um, just because I've overcome some of the hardest challenges that might be seen uh, by society doesn't mean that the person next door who just broke up with their partner isn't as relevant. I think that's really important for, for me to spread that wherever I go as well, is that our challenges are very relative and we deal with them in very different ways. Um, and there's no one right or, way, right or wrong way. It's okay way. to be in that moment and in, in what you're in. And to feel it, yeah. I love what you were talking about in, in terms of perspective and it's an it's an interesting one. I'd, I'd be interested in getting your take on it because I think occasionally perspective can be seen as a bit of a weapon. It's like, well, what I mean by that is it's, um, yeah, well, what you're going through is tough but it's not as tough as or, you know, it could be worse um, and that can almost make us feel guilty or that the experience that we're going through is almost invalidated in, in some way. Um, what has helped you, I guess, navigate between, because it's important just to acknowledge where we are, even if you go, I know I'm not going to be here all the time, but it's just shitty today <laughs> and it's just hard and I'm tired. And to also get a sense of perspective. Yeah, I call, I call BS on the people that say that, you know, um, what is it? Like they call it like toxic positivity or something where it's <laughs> yeah. like, oh, like, oh, I'm having a bad day, but I, I couldn't, it's not as bad as that person or that moment or whatever. It's like a really bad comparison, right? It's not <laughs> like, going to serve anyone. <laughs> who cares? If you're feeling shit, feel shit. Um, yeah. If you need perspective, perspective is a great tool if you can use it in the right way, right? So if it's that I'm getting caught up in the small insignificant shit in life, 
sorry for my language, but use perspective. It's great. Get a bit of a reality hit, all that kind of stuff. Um, if you're getting down on yourself for being down on yourself, bullshit. That's absolute crap. Um, feel what you need to feel and feel it in whatever way that you want to feel it as well. Um, for me at my lowest points, I was quite highly critical of myself. And even to this day, it's tough for me to have a bad day. I, I run a movement based on kindness. I see kindness wherever I go. I practice gratitude. I try and pr promote as much resilience in myself as possible. But I'm also a human being. And so if I'm having one of those days where in the back of my head I'm going, I should be grateful because this opportunity is in front of me. I'm traveling the world. I'm doing all this kind of stuff, but I'm just not. I've just learned to just go have a shit day, lie in bed, go to the beach, do whatever you want to do. Um, but allow yourself to be a human being as well. Um, and then perspective in, in real life, I guess, when we're facing challenges as well. Um, as an example um, to that, I think it's, it's more like your life matters. Um, so there might be a person that is earning more money than you or in a better position at work than you or whatever it is. Um, it, it, it doesn't matter. Your life is just as important as the person's next to yours. Um, and if that's all the perspective that you need in the world to continue to have better days, then I think that's an important thing to think about as well is that we're all, we're, fundamentally we're equal. We're all born in this world as the same people with the same hours in the day, the same opportunities um, and whichever way that pans out for us through challenges and experiences, good and bad, then so be it. But um, use, like, treat yourself as a human being every day as well. Beautiful. And we're all trying to figure it out along the way. No one's an expert <laughs> in life, nah. So kindness has become your world in so many ways. So that Catalyst from the Kindness Factory, um, I guess, blog and the community that started to build around that and then were there for you in, in, in that, um, that rehab kind of experience once again. It's now a big part of your world. You have this platform called the Kindness Factory. I know you're seeking for a million acts of kindness to be logged on that. So um, we will put all the links, but please check out the Kindness Factory um, online to be able to, you know, share your your act of kindness because there's something about hearing about and seeing the kindness of others in witness that actually also it almost like it rings a little bell inside of us to go, yes, I know what that feels like and, and pull me towards that. But that's a big shift from this was a blog and it was nice conversation to be a part of to now be heading up a, a charity and and thinking about how can this thing exist even beyond me um, moving forward. At what point did you realise that this is something I'm going to commit to and have a sense of, um, I guess, purpose and direction to go, this is my next uh, direction and the next thing I'm going to put my grit and my, my <laughs> determination into? Um it's a funny question. I get it all the time. Like for me in my struggles that I've said it before, the thing that stood out most was kindness, right? So when you're in a wheelchair like I have been and you can't reach the lift button, right? Because you're not strong enough to push yourself up and you, you're just broken. Um, and a random stranger walks past without intention or wanting praise or recognition just goes, I can see a person in need and I can see that I can help by simply pressing that button. As insignificant as that seems to a person who's doing it, they're the moments that matters that matter, especially when you're in a vulnerable position like I have been. And even when you're not, right? If someone can just do that for that sake. So 
Um, I guess for me, I always sort of come back to three things um, and it's how I sort of like to live my life with purpose, um, understanding that I have a choice to live with purpose every single day and that... Do you know what that purpose is? Like what's that? For me now, it's it's kindness, right? So um, it saved my life. It's got the power to change lives all around the world. So that's my purpose every single day. And if I can always stay true to that, then I'm going to be a happy person and that's how Kindness Factory is formed. Can I dig in a little bit and feel free to kind of fob this off or not, but do you have... Um, artifacts or things that remind you of that purpose. And it might sound silly because it's a it's an intentional purpose that brings you forward, but there are moments and there are days and, like I said, we all have those moments. Are there, are there things and ways that bring you back, reconnect you, uh, touchstones that are back to that purpose? Um, uh, it's a hard question because I'm surrounded by every single day now. So um, when I wasn't, when this was like a side project and a blog and all that, yeah, there were certainly days where um, I lost my sense of purpose because I was caught up in the grind of my my day job or um, other people telling me it would never be a thing or a success. Um, now it's easy because, I mean, I control a website where hundreds of acts get logged every day and I approve them. Um, so I make a point of looking and reading every single one of them. Um, we've got to aggregate them uh, for swearing and all that kind of stuff. But And it's hard not to get a sense of this is why I do what I do. Um, and so no is the, the answer now, um, which sounds very, um, I don't know what it sounds, eh, probably judging myself. It sounds very privileged, but I am very privileged now, not by worth as in net worth, but in in kindness I am. So I hear a lot of it. I see a lot of it. If I'm not doing it myself, other people are doing it on my behalf, um, which is a, a very big privilege. So, um, but certainly, yeah, back in the day, um, and like now even, like I'll say to someone, they'll be like, can you consult for us or what's your fee on this? I'm a speaker, a motivational speaker, and I'll be like, oh, my, this is what I charge to speak. And I'll get comments like, well, that's not very kind. Right. <laughs> I'm like, right. oh, okay, I've also got bills to pay and, and all of that kind of stuff. And they're very insignificant, mo- insignificant moments in the journey that I'm in. But um, It's true, though. Like, I can imagine um, <coughs> in a different platform that, yeah, there'd be other people who would might experience something like that as well, that it can be kind of pushed back on, on the niceness or the gratitude. It's like, oh, well... Yeah, walk your talk, do it for free, come on. <laughs> which which um, I do. So for every one corporate talk I do, I do three schools for free. So I'm a busy person, uh, but schools are, for me are where the future's at and that's where I'm going to make the biggest impact. Um, when you go on into a big company, though, who pay for motivational speakers, uh, which is a taxing toll to take on yourself, right, to tell the story I've just told mm. today several times a week um, can sometimes have an emotional impact. So I need to be able to protect myself and I need to have finance to have income so that I can pay my bills and feed myself and do all those sorts of things. So, um, but they're just comments that you get on the way that you have to live with and they're parts of life that you've got to na- navigate through. Um, so how it sort of, I guess, got big Kindness Factory was um, I spent those six months walk, learning how to walk and I had to face the man actually that hit me with his car in court and he was drunk driver, um, facing all sorts of criminal charges. Um, the first day didn't show up in court. It was a three-day process, which just um, disappointed me, uh, would be one word for it. Uh, the second day, we learned he was facing criminal charges. The third day, he lost his licence, obviously, and the criminal charges were handed out. So no jail time, but some pretty severe stuff going on. And he broke down in tears in court. And um, my dad was there. He was a police officer for 40 years. He was supporting me. And I walked up to him and I put my hand on his shoulder and I said, mate, are you okay? And he said, 
no, I'm not. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that you're having a bad day. And he looks at me in the eye and he said, okay, thanks. And I said, look, how are you getting home today? And he said, I don't know, I've obviously lost my licence. Uh, he was a, I think he was a driver of some description for his income. So he's obviously lost his licence. His income is now severely depleted because he can't earn an income because he can't drive. So he had no means of actually getting home. And I just sort of looked at him and I said, look, we'll give you a lift home, my dad and I. And my dad's there going, Kath, we will not give him a lift home. And this wasn't about kindness or forgiveness. It wasn't about anything like that. For me, I was like, his behaviour doesn't determine mine. So if he wants to carry on like a, a pork chop, as dad would say, doesn't mean that I have to. And would I normally have done this? Yes, is the answer. So I'm going to do it. And it was also about closure. So I'm done now. Physically, I was okay at that point in time. I was actually walking. Um, and uh, I guess for me, it was just an opportunity to to find some closure so that I could move my life forward in the direction it needed to go without having that in my head. So it was a 15-minute journey. We got out the front of his house. Um, he got out, never once said sorry, which still bothers me, I think, to this day, but I'm never going to try and reach out. I think that's done now. And Dad sort of sat there at the front and he goes, mate, uh, can we have a talk? And I was like, Dad, should we do it? Like, I'm, I'm 32 now. This would have been, I was 29 at the time. So too old for dad talks. But I said, of course we can. He said, look, I'm not angry. I'm not disappointed. Uh, what's the word? Maybe I'm annoyed. I said, really, dad, talk me through it. And he said, okay, Kath, you're an auntie, so you might get close to it. But um, as a parent, it is really hard to watch your kids struggle. And you sort of asked the question before when I broke my back the first time, what was your family like? And Literally, Kath, I've watched you crawl for the last six months, being told you'd never walk again for the second time of your life. I get that he didn't do it intentionally, but he took steps towards ruining your life. And that has been so hard for your mother and I to watch. You were on life support for two weeks. We had to make the toughest decisions of our life. And that was hell for us. And it was the first time I really considered what it was like from their perspective. And he said, notwithstanding that, Kath... The four years prior to that were the toughest things you will ever go through in your life, mate, um, to have lost the love of your life in the way that you did um, and to watch you just drag yourself through it was challenging. And I respected that and I was like, Dad, I so appreciate you telling me that. Like I've never really considered it in that way. I've always been grateful for you but I've never really considered what you went on this journey and that's when I realised I was actually lucky to have been the one to go through it and to have not watched a person that I loved went through it. Um, same for my friends who were with me when I got hit by the car. They were traumatised. Um, and I was like, wow, I, I really am lucky. And I said to Dad, like, I, I appreciate it and I have so much respect for you. Can I explain where I'm coming from why we did that? And he said, of course. I said, Dad, so often in life and through the challenges and the adversities that I've faced, I see so much hate in the world um, and there's so much more to life and living than just living in hate. You turn on the news and there's just hate, there's crime, there's drugs, there's so much sadness that goes on in the world and it doesn't have to happen. Most of it is unintentional suffering, sorry, uh, not unintentional, unnecessary suffering. So we're putting or we're creating the harm for others that doesn't actually need to exist. And you see that hate and then all these people, they respond to that hate with more hate. And it's just creating so much hate in the world. Um, look at what's going on in the States and borders and guns and all that kind of stuff. And it's so unnecessary and we don't have to live that way. And it just creates all this hate. And to be honest, Dad, I'm not proud to be a part of this world at the moment. And if I was to really look cold and hard at myself, at a young age, I read a quote and I really need to Google it, who it was by. It's definitely not mine. It was that the world is changed by your example and not by your opinion. And for me, that translated to don't just sit there and have an opinion, actually act on it. So um, I was feeling quite lost again and dad and I had a cuddle. It was really emotional and a beautiful moment and we're great. I love my dad. 
And um, and it's good that we could have those sort of debates, I guess. Um, and so I just, I don't know what compelled me to do it again. I just had this unwavering belief in kindness. So it saved my life once. Why couldn't it again? So I ended up um, putting on social media, I sort of did this challenge, a social experiment, call it whatever you want. Um, and I just said, look, I'm going to leave my home with nothing but the clothes on my back. So I'm going to go and I can't take cash or credit card or food or water or anything with me. I'm going to go and I need your help. I can't accept help from immediate family or friends. So I had to help get help off strangers. And it ended up reaching world headlines all around all around the globe. So um, in NBN in America, in the UK, because I'd lived there, um, all around Australia, Channel 7 News picked it up while the Olympics were on in 2016. And um, I had 10,000 offers to help me. So to feed me, to get me from A to B, to put me up in their house. Um, I, I traveled by boat, train, I stayed in five-star accommodation, I lived in tents, I fed the homeless, I was fed by the homeless. And it changed my life. I ended up traveling for two months uh, and learned so much. We talk about perspective. Oh my God, did I get a lot of that? Um, for every micro story I shared similar to with you today, I heard hundreds more that were incredible. Um, and my life was just this ant in comparison to some of the things that people suffer and face on a daily basis. And here, they, here there were people who had next to nothing in their life, yet they were saying and putting, they were saying to me, I want to help you and I'm going to put you up for a night and I can't give you anything but a roof over your head and the love in my heart. It was incredible and it's still, I've just got goosebumps. It still gives me goosebumps. I'm still in touch with the hundred of people that, um, that I stayed with or connected with on that journey that gave me a cuppa or a coffee when I needed it. Um, and sometimes just an ear to chat to. I travelled to every state in Australia uh, and at the two-month mark, I, I mean, I, with the amount of offers and traction we are getting, I could have gone for, I think, as long as I wanted. Um, but for me, the journey before I'd even left had, had had given me that reaffirmation back in kindness. So, And I haven't really stopped since. So I got back home. I had a, a bit of a month to collect myself. I quit my job. And then I just went, I'm committing my life to this. I don't know what it's going to be, how it's going to look, but the world needs this and I'm going for it. So um, I just got offers from all around the world to, to speak and to share my journey in the US and the UK and here in Australia. And um, it sort of started off as me just being a motivational speaker and very accidentally, I'm not a great speaker. I just have a great story and, and I guess a great perspective or view on the world. So people just sort of invited me everywhere. And about 18 months ago, I was in the US um, <laughs> I, I got briefed on this this gig. It was like, can you come in and, and really humble our people? And I said, of course. And like, it's a pretty impressive bunch, Kath. And I was like, oh, that's great. But didn't do my homework. Very like me. Haven't changed since school. And uh, they gave me eight minutes to share my story, open the whole event, 4,000 people in Ojai in California. And I was like, okay. And I got out there on stage and two minutes into the eight, things are going really, really well. Um, and I look off center to the right and it's Barack and Michelle Obama and to the left and it's the Dalai Lama. And I just started to shit myself on stage. <laughs> I was like, where on earth am I? How have I not given this a consideration it deserved? Um, I think that's what a lot of people like in me, that I just don't consider that stuff. But um, it changed our, uh, I guess, the evolution of Kindness Factory has never been the same. So um, we're now a registered non-profit in the States, in America. Got a lot of funding through sort of AT&T. Um, Reese Witherspoon's picked up the story. I'm doing a lot of work with her production company, Hello Sunshine, through Women's Story telling and empowerment and all that. Um, and then brought it back. amazing stuff coming out of that. They're so incredible. A really powerful platform to be connected with. I um, the, the, the CEO is an Aussie, Sarah Harden. So she's beautiful, made, made, me, made me feel really safe. And 
Yeah, so it's just sort of, um, I look back now and go, how is this thing, this person from a really tiny country town of 800 now inspired close to 200,000 acts of kindness and growing every minute of every day? Um, and it's so much more about my, more about uh, or less about my story now, more about what the kindness actually means to people. So our target at the moment from a charitable, charitable standpoint is to get into the education system. So build a curriculum of kindness. What are the foundation? What are the elements, the attributes of kindness? Um, and how do we get that into school at a young age so that we're grown and we grow and evolve as people um, from a young age of five to 18 um, with, uh, I guess, the concept of what kindness is and how truly impactful it could be for us as well. So um, we're making big strides towards that at the moment. Um, it's been fantastic um, from a business standpoint. We've developed lots of um, I guess it's almost like a social enterprise model. We've developed sort of merchandise. Uh, a big one for us in corporates has been a, a play kind uh, cards concept where you just get 52 acts or challenges of kindness to improve yourself and grow in the process of improving the world as well, which have been a big hit everywhere I speak at now. So um, just loving this journey. Like it's, um, there is not a chance in hell that like a lot of people say at the end of a talk, like if you could package up your life and you could have a fresh start from seven years ago when all of this stuff started to happen, or you could have the life that you had, which one are you taking? And without a moment of doubt or consideration, it's the life I've had. Um, and that's tough for people to understand because I have been through so much and I am quite young still to have suffered some of those things. But picture this, if I don't break my back the first time, uh, I don't meet the love of my life, the person who taught me that was so much more to life than cricket. Um, and then I don't go on to then, I guess, get the perspective of understanding what a near-death experience of, of being hit by the car could mean and what that's actually spurred me on to do internally. Um, and I'm so proud of what I do now. Um, it, you know, seven years ago, I was a cricketer and that's something, yes, to be proud of. But all I cared about was cricket. I was so one-dimensional. Um, did I know about, like I, I travelled around the world playing, but did I know about the world? No, I had no idea. Did I know what it was like for a person to suffer? Absolutely not. I lived a, a pretty um, pretty privileged childhood where I didn't have to deal with too much adversity or many challenges at all, really. It was sort of always there in front of me. Um, so to have the life that I have now um, and to do what I do every single day, I'm, I'm reminded of the power of what human connection and people um, can do and what we're all born to do, right? No one's born to hate. We're all born with the same opportunity every single day and religion creeps in and, you know, bullying and all that kind of stuff. And as we grow, it, things become uncool and all that sort of thing. But at, at a very early stage in life, none of that was in us. It was just we had this blank slate to be whoever we wanted to be and what an exciting prospect that is when you see a baby. But um, before all that stuff creeps in, we're just born on this earth to make as big as an impact as we can. So um, I feel like I'm doing a good job of that now, um, which is good. And, and it's a life that I'm, I'm incredibly proud of. Um, and there's so many more people in it now as well. So um, yes, I am the inspiration and the story behind it, but I've got an incredible board who every single one of them have come on this journey. They've all suffered some sort of experience in their life that has made them stop, reconsider what it's all about and left a job or whatever it is that they've done to become involved. And there's no way it would be anywhere near as successful without their influence. So I really need them to sort of take as much due recognition as they deserve as well. But I think for all of us, it's that, it's that call to something inside of us to go, hey, we can shift a world. And it's, being, it's a remi remembering of that. Like you say, it's something we were born to do. It's uh, 
and it's that reminder that we've got permission to do it. And I think that platform that you create, the invitation that you have in the way that you bring in that conversation is really powerful around how people can shift the planet. I want to ask the final question. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. I, I, in some ways, I feel like you probably answered the question. <laughs> but <laughs> when you think about a standout life, what, what comes up to for you? What does it mean to you to live a standout life? Um, for me, it means, it's again, I guess like adversity, it's a relative experience. For me, a standout life is actually probably comes back to authenticity, right? So it's no good standing out if it's not who you are. Um, so like you don't have to be a celebrity to make a difference or to stand out back to your words. You just need to be who you are. And I think if we all did that and we all took, took a piece of our own pie, we'd all find a way to stand out in our own unique and individual way. Um, look at my life as even a, an example to that is how as a person or an athlete that cared about nothing, but being an athlete now running a movement based on kindness, it doesn't make any sense. Or does grief, loss and trauma add up to kindness? No, it doesn't. But is it in me? Yes. Um, and and again, there's always people that are going to try and cut you down or knock you down or tell you you're on the wrong path. But so long as you know who you are underneath, um, I think that's the best the best way to be. Thanks for being who you are, Kath. And thanks <laughs> so much for your time and for sharing your story. Of course. Thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.